Go ahead and turn to Philippians 1. Philippians chapter 1. Hopefully you guys uh, soaked through that chapter this morning, just a few minutes ago. And that will kind of prime you for where we're going to be for the rest of the weekend. We're going to focus in on the back half of Philippians chapter 1. So we introduced the series for this weekend last night, Established. We want you guys to be established, well-built, to have a good, firm faith. And so the question that we're asking for this weekend is, what does that look like? What does an established faith look like? How should we understand that? And uh, what should we do in seeking to have an established faith? Last night, we kind of introed it with three questions. Have you received Jesus as Lord? Do you walk in him daily? Do you rest in his power with thanksgiving? Hopefully you guys are able to reflect on those in your discussion group times. Um, but that was more of an introduction. And if we can kind of move forward, I want us to get practical. I want us to say, okay, what does that look like in my life to actually have an established faith? What does that look like? What should I be doing in response to that? So that's the direction we're going. So I want to show you a graph. Um, it should be the next slide. Yeah. So this is where um, I got the, the idea of EST. EST, and then I was like, oh, that's like established. That's cool. Um, because when we think about our Christian life, we can think about it in three primary relationship categories. Our relationship to God, our relationship to our brothers and sisters in Christ, one another, and our relationship to others or unbelievers. And as we look at these relationships, we're going to hit three things of what it looks like to have an established faith when relating to God, when relating to one another, when relating to others. And just because it's kind of interesting, they all have an E word, an S word, and a T word, maybe help you remember somewhat and whatnot. But um, it's kind of forced, but it's okay. We'll still do justice to what the text is saying. But um, anyway, so Philippians 1. Uh, we're going to focus in on verses 18 through 21 this morning of that chapter. And we're going to see how this should inform how we relate to God. How do you relate to God as an individual? We have a God who is relational with us. He created us to be in relationship with him. And that means that you have the opportunity to relate to him, to be in a relationship with him. So how is that relationship defined in your life? How do you relate to God? And if we want to have an established faith, a firm faith, what does that mean for our relationship to God? So that's what we're going to unpack, okay? First, for this passage in Philippians 1, I want to give us some background um, info that you guys probably should be somewhat familiar with, having read it this morning. But Paul, he's writing this probably uh, from Rome, but he's imprisoned. The Apostle Paul is imprisoned. And he's not imprisoned for good reason. He's imprisoned just because of his faith. And yet he's writing to the Philippians, and he's saying, look, these bad circumstances that I'm going through, they're going to resolve for the sake of God's glory and the furtherment of people's faith. And it's, it's awesome. So Paul sees his circumstances through the lens of God's glory, through, through his faith being tested and proven, and, and through his, um, his deliverance. He says, these things will lead to my deliverance. So Paul has this attitude this unshakable attitude of just being firm and steadfast in the things that are important to him. 
And where does he get this attitude from? He has every reason in the world to complain. He's in prison. People are bad-mouthing him for stuff that he hasn't done. And, you know, you, do you guys know those people that just always find something to complain about? There's such a joy to be around, right? You're like, oh, can I just be in your presence all the time, person who complains about everything? Like if you're at Disney World complaining about the long lines or, you know, you're at Carowinds and you're complaining about the long lines. I don't know. There's just some, that one person, you know, in your, in your mind, right? You probably have them pictured right now, that person that complains about everything. Well, Paul does not have that perspective. Paul says, there's no reason for me to complain, even though I'm in prison unjustly. And we need to ask ourselves as we're reading this text, where does he get this attitude from? Where does he get this perspective from? And I'll say, we, we find out how Paul has that attitude and perspective when we look at how Paul relates to God. It's something about how he sees his relationship to God that gives him this attitude of not being a complainer or a grumbler. And so that's what... We'll dive into. So, how does Paul have this attitude? Let's start in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Just just to give a little bit more background. People were like bad-mouthing Paul and yet still preaching the gospel. And so Paul's getting slandered. And he goes, so what? At least Jesus is being preached. I can be slandered as long as Jesus keeps being preached. And that's what he rejoices in. And he continues, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There are three things I want us to see here in Paul's relationship to God that will help us in our pursuit to have an established faith. Before we jump into them, let me pray and kind of reset. Father, you are good and gracious towards us. You have saved us in and through the person of Jesus. And we are here to exalt him, to sing about you and your glory, to sing about the gospel, to hear about the gospel, to read about the gospel in scripture. And our hope and our desire is that as we hear those things, as we see those things and meditate over those things, that you would change us to be more like Jesus for your glory. So God, do that in this next half hour. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, there's three things we see from Paul here in in regards to his relationship to God. Okay, number one, Paul rejoices in the exaltation of Jesus. Paul rejoices in the exaltation of Jesus. So Paul is full of joy, and he's rejoicing while he's in chains, while he's imprisoned, while his freedom is limited. And what's the reason he can have joy in this circumstance? He can have joy because he he says that Jesus is being proclaimed. In other words, Jesus is being exalted. Jesus is is being made to look great and awesome and glorious. And, And seeing that that is happening, Paul is overwhelmed with joy. 
that, that joy is triumphing over his bad circumstances. So Jesus is being proven in Paul's life to be greater than any temporary pleasure, any prosperous circumstances. Over and above his circumstances, Jesus is ascending above the mess and the chaos and the confusion. Like Paul may not understand exactly what's going on, but he knows his end game. He says, this will turn out for my deliverance. And he's probably not talking about like his physical deliverance. He's probably talking about salvation. So Paul knows his end game. But even in the frustration and confusion, he knows Jesus is being proclaimed. And in that, he can rejoice. That's a powerful joy. It's a powerful experience. So as Paul experiences pain, hardship, heartache, setback, and suffering, he says that he rejoices in and through all of that because Jesus is being proclaimed. So we have to ask ourselves, what causes us to rejoice? When we're going through difficulties and hardship in life and suffering and setback after setback, and we just don't understand what God is working in, are we at least able to say, well, Jesus is being exalted? Are we able to see and trust that God in and through the mess is working for Jesus to look great and glorious? Because that is what Paul resolves And that's what gives him joy. So here's a way to ask this. What overwhelms your circumstances? What is something that no matter what, as long as this exists, as long as this is happening, you're good? What immediately puts you in that good mood or that good state of mind? Right? Because there are things in your life that will overwhelm your circumstances. I remember 2009, college, dorm room. Yankees won the World Series. You could have punched me in the face, and I still would have kept smiling. Because because I was so happy, right, in that moment. It overwhelmed my circumstances. Like, man, you can't shake me. The Yankees just won the World Series. That was also the last time they've won a World Series, but that's fine. We don't have to talk about that. Um, All other World Series don't matter. But there's things in your life that happen to you, that you experience, that overwhelm your experience. Your, your circumstances. Jesus' salvation, Jesus' work in your life, God's rescuing you should be something that can overwhelm your circumstances. It overwhelmed Paul's circumstances of being in prison. So this, this is the point, is allow the exaltation of Jesus, allow the proclamation of Jesus, allow Jesus being made to look great and glorious, allow that to overwhelm your circumstances. Rejoice in the exaltation of Jesus. If you want to have an established faith, if you want to stand firm, find your joy in Jesus being exalted. There are things in your life that will disrupt your comfort and your security. But if you have a foundation that's rooted in Jesus, you won't be shaken. You can stand firm and keep keep going. There's a second thing we see in this passage. Number two, Paul seeks for Jesus to be seen and savored in his life. Paul rejoices in the exaltation of Jesus, says Jesus is being lifted up, Jesus is being made to look great, and this is how he interprets his circumstances. His one desire is that Christ would be honored through him. And he says that, That's what he wants. 
It says, whether, whatever happens, as long as Christ is honored in my body, whether through death or through life, he is satisfied. That is his one desire. doesn't matter what circumstances unfold, as long as it's working for Christ to be honored. And so he wants other people to see how good and great Jesus is through him. He wants people to see Jesus and savor Jesus through him. Do you guys know what, like, to savor something is? Yes or no? Like, what is, what is something that's savory? Bagel? Oh, I was like, bagel? No. Uh, we just had some donuts back there. Those are pretty savory. But when I think of savoring something, right, I think of eating something or drinking something that's completely satisfying. Right? It's like you're just like, that hit the spot. Uh, a good cup of coffee in the morning, I'll tell you, that can just completely satisfy you. Once you get there one day. Once you need the coffee sometimes. But uh, for my wife, it's probably a brownie sundae. Yes. Right? Just completely satisfies her. If I ever do something stupid, I'll just come home with a brownie sundae, right? We, we have things in our life that not only do we see and observe and we know about, but they, they're savory. They satisfy us. That's how Jesus is supposed to be to you. Some of you in here may see Jesus a lot. You may treat him as this distant object in your life. But do you savor Jesus? Does he completely satisfy you? And do you want other people to not only see Jesus in and through your life, but to find Jesus to be ultimately satisfying, to be the thing that will fulfill their joy because it fulfills your joy? That's what Paul wants. That's what his one desire is. He wants Christ to be honored in his, in his body and through life or through death. That's what he wants. He wants other people to see and savor Jesus through him. So we are not called to simply see Jesus exalted, but we are also compelled to savor Jesus as all-satisfying. Third thing we see, Paul finds Jesus to be his only treasure. His only treasure. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. A lot of times we hear some some verses in the Bible, and, you know, we remember them, and they're kind of ones that we can, I don't know, put on Instagram or paint in our house or something. But do we realize how ridiculous that verse is? He says his death is gain. And, and the only reason that makes sense, listen, the only reason it makes sense for his death to be gain is because his life is Christ. All of his life is about Jesus. All of his existence is centered around the person and work of Jesus. And what he sees in death is not something that conquers him. He sees that as a doorway to departing to be with Jesus. And that's why he sees death as gain. So it only makes sense. It only makes sense for Paul to say that death is gain because he serves a king who has conquered death. And he, he is the one that he treasures. He treasures Jesus. So Paul says that all of his life, not just part of it, not just Sunday mornings, not just Wednesday evenings, not just when there's other people in the house, but when he's alone with his computer, 
when he's at school with this group of friends. All of his life is centered on Jesus being all satisfying to him, his greatest treasure, his only treasure. And because of that, it it leads to this radical commitment of his whole life being in Christ and his death is even gain. So his life only continues because of Jesus. Can you say the same thing for yourself? Your life is only continuing because of Jesus. And that's what you want your life to make a mark on. On the, the story of God unfolding in people's lives. On Jesus being exalted, seen and savored through your life. I, I had a, a good friend of mine named John. I got his picture up here. This is John. He actually came back for me one time with me and a couple of college friends to serve at a D-Now. He played electric guitar. I don't think any of you guys are in youth at that time. No. Maybe Luke. It was, I came back and led worship for D-Now, brought him home with me. Um, but John has this Instagram post I remember from college, and it's just been etched in my memory forever. And I want, I want to read it for you if you have the next slide. He was always good at pictures, got the Instagram aesthetic going. Um, but this is what it says, and just follow along with me. It's not all on the screen. It says, if life ends at the grave, then we have no ultimate purpose for living. The fate of the sons of men and the fate of the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over the beast For all is vanity, all go to the same place, all come from the dust, and all return to the dust. Death touches us all. This is what John says. He comments on this. He says, we were created to enjoy, serve, love, and please our creator. Why? Because there is ultimate and significant purpose in this. We are given value and purpose from the greatest being in the universe, God, through his son, Jesus Christ. Your life is given significance and purpose, even beyond the point of death, because of God and his value for you. John says, if there's no God, we could all live for ourselves, not worry about a single consequence. All of creation, people versus animals, none of it would be different as it would have been thrusted into existence with no purpose. The culmination of this is a meaningless death for all. That's all there would be if there was no God, death. That would be our hope, to die, to get off this rock so we can cease to exist, to not have to persevere any longer through the life. But if there is a God, and I am without a shadow of a doubt sure of this through subjective experience, through objective moral reasoning, through the revelation of absolute truth revealed in the Bible, then all of us should be worried. Worried that we will face a perfect holy God who offers us purpose, and we rejected him for insignificance. This is why we must give our lives to the God of the universe, to have ultimate purpose beyond ourselves and to not waste this life in the insignificance of ourselves. In him we have purpose and hope. He offers it so freely when we give up our insignificance in a radical exchange for his significance. That's grace. 
those last few sentences wreck me. He says, in him we have purpose and hope. He offers it so freely when we give up our insignificance in a radical exchange for his significance. All that you need to give God is your dependency on yourself. And what he gives you freely is significance in him. So when we find that God is our only treasure, then our significance in life gets changed for significance of Jesus. You know, for many of us, we might pass over a post like that. We might hear things like that as we go through life. And they may be a blip on our radar, and we may remember them and then forget them. But I remember that post because of what happened to John a week later. I want to show you another post that he made three days later. This is... This was John's last Instagram post. I remember when um, Steph woke me up, November 9th, four years ago, (laughs) and telling me that, that John passed. And it just wrecked me. Here's the thing, I I wasn't sad for John. I wasn't sad for John. John was in glory now. Because Jesus was John's greatest treasure, his death was gain. Do you realize how ridiculous that is? That his death was gain? But it's because he treasured Jesus above all things. His Instagram bio was to tell others of Christ and his great worth, living for a purpose greater than myself. I pray that that would be the bio that's written on our hearts. To live a life that's simply committed to exalting Jesus. For other people to see and savor Jesus in us. And if that happens, if that's what your life is about, death can't touch you. Death is gain. And guys, that should shake you. That should show you how radical the Christian life is. This isn't something that just conveniently fits into our life. This is something that turns our existence upside down by saying that something like death is gain. So like I said, I'm not, I'm not sad for John. I wasn't sad. He's, uh, he was standing on that train trestle. I don't know if you see this. It's about a few hundred feet up from the ground. He was on that train trestle, and they didn't realize it, but a train started coming, and they had to run. And they couldn't outrun the train. It was a horrible accident. His life cut short. 
But it wasn't cut short in the eyes of God. Radical life change happened because people started to, to lift up the name of Jesus because of John. They said, this guy was serious about the gospel. And this is what I'm saying. When you come to the end of your days, and we never know when that day will be. When you come to the end of your days, the only thing that will last is the impression of Christ in and through your life. The influence that you've had for the gospel is the most important thing about you. And this is not simply to say that God is using you as a tool to make himself look awesome. Because your influence for the gospel, the greatest way God does that is by completely satisfying you with himself. If you want to make God look glorious, if you want to have uh, an influence like John had with your, with your life, and you want God to be glorified with your life, you need to be completely satisfied in him. People need to know that you find your joy in the exaltation of Jesus. You want Christ to be honored in your body no matter what. That's what your life is about. Jesus is your only treasure. John Piper said it this way. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So if you have the desire in here for God to be glorified, if you recognize that's what you've been called to do as a follower of Jesus, then what God is offering you is complete satisfaction with himself. He says, let me satisfy you. Stop turning to the temporary lusts. Stop turning to the, the misunderstandings of your own authority. Stop acting out in disobedience. Stop turning to those things as sources of fulfillment because they will never satisfy you. And God says, let me satisfy you. Let me fulfill your deepest longings. And God has done that in the gospel. So if you want to have an established faith, this is how you need to relate to God. You need to rejoice in Jesus' exaltation. You want to seek for others to see and savor Jesus in your life. And you find Jesus to be your only treasure. These things are not simply things that you can just add to your life. They aren't just something that can accompany your life. These are not things that you can just simply add to your schedule. It's like, okay, YouTube, video games, Jesus time. No, Jesus, if, if what he says is true, what Paul says that to live is Christ and this needs to change everything. And it might look ridiculous to your life. It will look radical to the point of you saying something like death is gain. But if you're willing to do that, you're willing to take that step, God is willing and happy to take you and satisfy you with himself. So that's how we must relate to God if we want to stand firm. We must be completely satisfied in him and completely committed to his glory. Guys, we, we are all on this process together as followers of Jesus. 
This is what God has called us to. We're here to help one another. We're going to talk more about that tonight. How can you help the other brothers and sisters in Christ in this room to do that? To exalt Jesus. To glorify God. And um, I just pray that you guys honestly take it seriously. Because it's worth it. Let me pray for us and the band will come back up and close us out in some worship songs. Lord Jesus, you are worthy to be praised. You are more glorious than we can even fathom. And yet, Lord, you have offered us people who had sought to do things our own way, people who had sought to reject you, you have saw fit to include us in your glory by giving us the image of Jesus through salvation. So God, I pray that these students, every person in this room, would recognize how glorious you are and how committed you are to their salvation. And I ask that you would simply work in their hearts to surrender to you to have faith in you every single day of their lives. So God, your blessings are what we seek and we're thankful that you're willing to give them. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand and sing.